Before we get going, just a quick reminder that you can download the High Performance app for free. Download the app, use your exclusive code HPAPP, that's HPAPP for access, where you can hear Simon Sinek guiding me through a process to help me find my why. Just download the High Performance app for free and use the code HPAPP for access. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged and to grow. Here's what's coming up today. When I got to Formula One, Michael Schumacher was dominating the sport, but I never thought that I was slower than him. When I closed the visor, I, I remember everything that we spoke on Sunday morning with the team, executing the race as a, as a robot. That's the beauty of the sport, that even if you want to do something with no emotion, everything comes alive in, in certain moments of the race. Second is the first losers. In a sport, you win or you don't. What I regret for sure, and, and we touched before, was not to enjoy more my, my time, my career. Fernando Alonso, one of the greatest ever Formula One drivers, joins us today on High Performance. And you know what? You've spent your life seeing Fernando Alonso be incredible behind the wheel of a car, but you've also seen Fernando Alonso behind the visor of a Formula One helmet, right? For almost the first time, I think that we're lifting the visor. We're having a conversation with Fernando about things that he doesn't talk about. We're asking him questions that he never gets asked. And I can't tell you how fascinating this conversation was. You know, there are times where Damien and I say a lot less because we're just listening intently to the guest. And that's absolutely the case with Fernando. Of course, we talk about Formula One, but we talk about in the context of how do you keep on performing at an elite level? How do you overcome self-doubt and fear? What has he done that allows him to perform to the level he does. And honestly, listen to what he says about preparation. Because it doesn't matter whether you're preparing to race in a Formula One Grand Prix or take some exams at school or present to your colleagues at work or get yourself ready for retirement. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Preparation is the secret source. And you're about to hear that it has made all the difference for Fernando Alonso, a man who in his 40s is as driven as ever and believes he's also the best Formula One driver he has ever been. Fernando Alonso, the two-time Formula One world champion on high performance. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fernando, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So when I say high performance, what do you think of? <laughs> I think many, many things. Uh, first of all, Formula One, because it's, it's the expression of high performance in motorsport. 
but um, for me it's um, maybe delivering higher than expectations and having that extra something uh, on everything you do and that probably for me means high high performance you see everyone dreams of delivering a little bit extra a little bit more how do you go about finding that little bit extra well um i think we all try to to give that a uh, little bit extra as you said it's something that we all uh, try to achieve um but it's a little bit relative and uh, especially in a sport is um you have the comparison with with your main competitors so, so it's doing that little extra compared to them and uh, finding the the best version of yourself which is uh, an unlimited probably search uh, because every day is uh, there is something that you you can learn and you can improve so it is a difficult task but uh, it's something that um, you you pursue in, in in life and in sport as well and is that not tiring you're now 41 and you've been pursuing that little extra something all your life not really not really because i think uh, even if you are not in a professional sport you will start uh, pursuing something on your personal life or uh, you will try to um, achieve different goals in different businesses of different things that you will may uh, start in, in in your life after your motorsport career so i think um, it's, it's a way of living in a way but uh is is something that is not tiring. It's, it's just pure motivation, I think, to to wake up every morning and, and do a little bit extra. So, Fernando, you started your driving career at the tender age of three. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your family, because I'm interested of your family's motivation to allow you to get behind the wheel of a go-kart at such a young age. Yeah, my first race was at the age of three, which um, at, at the moment right now is, is not legal anymore. I think the, the driver license for go-kart starts at, at eight now, so that's that's good uh, to don't have you know kids at three years old behind a wheel. But uh, back then, uh, my father was a go-kart uh, driver, um, just driving around my region never on a national level or or, or not international for sure and uh, yeah more for for fun than than anything else created a small go-kart handmade uh, for my sister that is five years older than me so my sister was eight Uh, my sister didn't like the go-kart on on that first couple of days that my father uh, tried and then uh, yeah eventually he put me in in the go-kart and uh, you know I, i like it and uh, yeah, as I said, I did my first race at the age of three. Uh, it was a street circuit. I, I don't remember anything, of course, but uh, I have the videos and the photos of that day. And um, I think the race was 15 laps and I did two of them. So I, I got lap 13 times and uh, in 15. Uh, but yeah, uh, they, they told me that uh, I won the race. So I was happy after, <laughs> after all. And uh, yeah, that's how I started. But I'm interested in their perception of risk. And what that taught you, because as you say, the rules have changed now when you have to be eight at least to get behind the wheel of a car. So can you remember anything around the advice that they gave you? Not not really. And and I think the the speed of, of that go-kart obviously was like a five or six kph. You you could walk uh, alongside the go-kart. So it was not fast at all. And, and the risk, uh, maybe for my parents, was not a, a risky thing to do. But I think it's something that, uh, especially families in motorsport, they have to to deal with it. They have to um, have a 
yeah, a different perception of risk because you know every every time we jump on a on a racing car, you know uh, anything can happen. You know now the cars are very safe, the circuits are very safe as well. Um, we we are in good hands with our teams, the FIA. Everyone is trying to protect us, but uh, anything can happen. So I think if I put in 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 the shoes of my parents or anyone uh, that is racing, for sure there is this uh, risk factor that you have to uh, to know how to deal with it. So what did your parents give you when you decided to make this something you wanted to pursue? I mean, I love the fact that you didn't come from a billionaire family with millions of pounds worth of backing from the very start, you know, really humble origins. But your parents, like... They must have done something, this competitive spirit, this will to win, even just the emotional confidence they gave you to go out and try your best. What? Yeah, it is It is uh, a very interesting question because uh, I spoke many times with, with, with them, with my parents and with my family in general because they are not at all competitive. So I don't know how, really? you know, I can be that competitive in everything I do. Uh, they still remember when we were playing games at home or cards or anything at home. You know, I was so uh, competitive and I was so upset with them. I could maybe not talk to them for, for one day if I was not winning, all these kind of things. And they never understood why, you know, I was like that because no one in the family, you know, had this approach. So... Yeah, still uh, unknown at the moment. So what do they say when you when you <laughs> ask them, like, how did this happen? What's their answer? For them, it was more uh, a fun thing to do on the weekends. Obviously, they, they had to work uh, on the weekdays. My mother uh, on a shopping mall, um, just selling perfumes, and my father on a explosive company, just uh, doing explosive for the mines in, in my region. So... Uh, the weekends was kind of a fun weekend with other families, this motorsport uh, enthusiasm uh, with, with the kids driving go-karts, but with no expectations at all that uh, that could become one day a, a professional thing. So I don't know, uh, all started like this. I, I won the Spanish championship uh, in 94. And then one uh, Italian mechanic showed me there in, in the in the Spanish championship and, and said, you have to come to Italy and, and race in your European championships and world championships. And uh, my father answered, we can't afford to travel to Italy and those kind of things. So they said, OK, I will speak with the factory and, and they can help you. So, yeah, is how I started. So can I go back, though, and ask, is there a particular moment that you remember that you had to win, that that competitive fire was inside of you? From what I remember, it was like a Spanish championship, I think back in 97. I won the world championship, karting world championship in 96. And then I went to, uh, and I stopped racing in, in Spain for a few years. So I went back in Spain uh, for the Spanish championship in 97. And that was the first time that I felt the pressure of winning or the need of winning because, you know, everyone expected that if you won the world championship, how you will not win the Spanish championship the, the following year. And we were not that fast that weekend. And, you know, I, I remember to be a little bit tense or nervous before that start, you know, because I had to win that 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 day. Eventually I did, but uh, probably the, my first memory of 
okay, now I, I need to deliver. You know, everyone is expecting a, a result from me. So would you explain a little bit then about how you managed that expectation and how you channeled it, what your thoughts were, how you approached it? Well, uh, it is it is something that is very individual for me. Is, um, when I have this pressure or when I feel that I have to deliver uh, high expectations, I try to calm myself. I try to... Um, I normally have a lot of self-confidence. I think that's very important to have confidence on on what you are doing and what you are capable of. That releases a little bit of pressure and uh, you are able to over-deliver if, if you have that confidence on yourself. But then I'm a very technical person as well, so I, I want to, to know everything about what I'm doing. Uh, when I'm not in my environment, on, on my comfort place, I get more stressed for sure. So one way to, um, to be calm before a, a race or whatever is to know everything about the strategy, everything about the tires, uh, hearing from the engineers, from the strategies, two, three, four times, what is the plan, you know? So that, that's my approach to the race, to be confident on what we are doing. Then maybe it doesn't work, but it's not, coming from myself or, or whatever that I'm in doubt. But I think this is a very individual thing, how we approach this, these moments. But it sounds like your approach is to make sure that when the visor goes down and the lights go out, you feel like you have done absolutely everything possible to give your best in that race. Yeah, I think, I think so. That could be a, a good way to, um, to explain it, but probably not only motor racing. It's, it's a way of living as well. So... When I'm at home relaxing and, and you know, I, I made the plan for the day or I go to the gym or there is a tennis match or whatever, I treat that tennis match like a Formula One Grand Prix. So I, I have to know everything about uh, with who I will play. Uh, if he's too strong, maybe I skip that day the tennis <laughs> and uh, because I hate losing. <laughs> if he's too uh, weak, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm maybe do extra sport before because that tennis match will not require too much of uh, you know activity from myself this kind of thing so every day is is very well organized on, on my head so when do you begin planning then for say you've got a rest day when do you begin planning to maximize that rest day well, in advance, yes. Um, I know and, and by now at, at 41 years old I know my my body, I know my head, I know everything that I need to to perform on my job. So uh, when it comes a, a long trip or uh, a busy week of, of events or marketing or whatever, I know that I will need extra days of rest. So I, I plan everything well in advance. I try to also travel as efficient as possible with the calendar that we have now. So you learn from, from your mistakes in the past and your previous years and experiences. Can we have a, a really honest conversation about self-doubt? Because I think when you're doing well in karting and you're winning a lot and you're moving through the ranks, like your self-confidence grows, suddenly you end up in Formula One where you are up against the very best people in the world. So you have to create techniques to deal with fear or self-doubt or seeing others that might have different or better skills than you. What is your relationship like with self-doubt? Not, not, not much. True. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know my limitations, and uh, but as I said before, knowing my limitations, I try to uh, avoid 
those things. Yeah. So what would, what are they then? Like, what would you say, even at this age, are your limitations? I mean, many, many things. I, I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to play golf. I don't know. You know, there are many things that I, I see people around me that they do. And I, I, I try to avoid those, those things. I skip those things because I know that I'm not good at. And I don't want to compare myself against them because they are better. One day if I train or if one day I do a cooking course or whatever, then maybe I cook for someone else or something like that. So I'm, I'm just... Uh, Doing, let's say, what I know that uh, I can do, and on that uh, specific thing, I, I don't have much self-doubt or I don't have many problems. It's true that you arrive to, to Formula One and you see, when I got to Formula One, Michael Schumacher was dominating the sport, but I never thought that I was slower than him, in a way. Maybe it was just a, a kamikaze <laughs> approach to Formula One and to my start of my career, but, you know, I, I never doubt of of having the same car, maybe I could challenge him one day. So that's that's how all my my career went so far. There's an interesting observation here that you often look at who's the best in your field, whether it's a Michelin star chef, whether it's Michael Schumacher in Formula One. How does comparison work for you then? Even when I stopped Formula One in 2018, I, I remember. I have to try different things in, in motorsport because my head was just telling me that I have to go a little bit out of my comfort zone in Formula One. I've been for many years. I was a little bit tired of traveling, tired of uh, yeah, not having the possibility of win anymore. And uh, the Indy 500, the 24-hour Le Mans, the Dakar Rally, there were other disciplines in motorsport that I thought they were uh, appealing and in a way self-rewarding because I never considered myself a Formula One driver. I just considered myself a, a driver, you know, in any kind of motorsport. It's not just a specific Formula One driving style. So by attempting those, I felt uh, that I had to learn a lot of things from the beginning. So I went to the Le Mans 24 hour and I had very experienced teammates alongside me and I have to learn a lot from them, but not publicly i have to learn you know uh, private between them and, and myself because everyone expected that the formula 1 driver will be very fast in any in any other car but i was just not knowing all those techniques same with dakar rally imagine from formula 1 to saudi with a dakar rally car it cannot be more opposite driving styles with the left foot and in, in the brake all the time all these kind of things so i have to do a lot of tests i have to learn a lot but never doubting that i could be as good as the best one in each of the disciplines. And that was just a, a test for me, but, you know, a test that it was rewarding and, and, and I was happy. So did you choose those for the experience or did you choose them because you felt you could be successful in them? Because I was thinking that I could succeed, yes, on, on those categories. And, and because um, I think in motorsport, they were not, precedence of, of those kind of challenges. Maybe in the past, in the 60s or the 80s, 70s, there were drivers, Formula One drivers, they, they were driving different cars and, and attempting Le Mans and things like that. But now in the, in the modern uh, motorsport, you develop certain skills from very young age uh, to drive in that specific discipline. So if you uh, are here in Europe and you are interested in Formula One, you start in go-cars and then Formula Four, Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One eventually, which are all the same techniques and, and circuits and, and these kind of things. 
if you are a an American boy, you know, you maybe develop your skills in oval racing, in dirt racing, and these kind of things. So it's very difficult at the age of 30 or 25 or 35 to move, you know, to a, a new discipline and, and be as quick as them because they just born into that environment. So that was a, a something that it was appealing on, on my head. And maybe I didn't need that, but it was just a kind of... A, let, let's do something that it could be a, a legacy also for the future because in a way uh, a driver that cannot succeed now and, and get to Formula 1 they cannot be frustrated because they didn't make it they are just phenomenal drivers that they will find you know their way in different disciplines and they still fulfill you know a little bit their dreams so what was the biggest thing you learned about yourself then when you went into those other disciplines that I still able to to learn, and Formula One didn't block my uh, my senses of of learning things, you know, and and also the the humble uh, approach to many things, which in Formula One is very easy to lose as well, because we live in this bubble that everything is good for us, everyone is taking care of us, we. We travel in the last day. We we do our job. We go back home. We we have all the privileges. And uh, then when you go in that car and you know you are two weeks in the middle of uh, nothing on a tent, uh, obviously you are not anymore in a five-star hotel. Or you don't have all the privilege, and and you still need to change your you know your suspension, your tires, and cleaning your windscreen. I love the images of you on your knees at two o'clock in the morning banging away at the bent suspension rods and stuff. Why is being humble important? I think because my family, and, and coming back to my family, this is probably the first and only advice they, they gave me always, you know, to stay humble, to stay um, who we were always in, in our family and uh, uh, taking all the advantages that this life can bring us, you know, economically and the status and everything that... Uh, you know, it's, it's part of, of Formula One circus as well. But uh, uh, from time to time, also, I go back to Spain. I spend, I spend one week with, with my family. And, and that week is kind of a reset, you know, of, you know, the last two weeks. That was a, an unreal life, you know, and this, this was a bubble. But now we go back to the, to the base and, uh, you know, we go to the supermarket. We see friends. We, we just chat. We play cards, whatever. This is the life that I will live you know for the next 40 or 50 years of my life and, and the life that is uh, also that i want to live in the next 40 or 50 years so would you describe to us then fernando a little bit around that inner circle those people that do reset you what are the kind of characteristics and values that they hold there that seem to resonate with you i think they have this humble approach of everything yes but also they have high discipline on everything they do because they had to uh, in the past, you know, to get their jobs, to um, finish the universities, to um, be on time on, on an interview for a job. You know, they, they, they have to work hard for uh, their things. So that uh, discipline, that um, uh, self-confidence as well, which I think they have in their things, you know, in their in their lives, they have this confidence of what they are doing. Um, yeah, I think the, the values that uh, we all grew up in in our families that sometimes in professional sport you can you can lose them because as I said you are just living a life 
on a speed that is unreal, you know, because we go from one place to the next. Uh, within 24 hours, we do seven or eight different things on a single day. So at the end of the day, driving the car is the least time of the day. We are one hour and a half sitting in the car, but uh, then we have 14 or 15 hours of different activities, acting, uh, photo shooting, uh, meeting prime ministers, you know, things that we are not able to deal sometimes at, at the age we get to Formula One or to professional sports and, and these kind of things are, are just uh, dragging you a lot of energy. And can you recount an incident that your family have ever had where they've had to give you feedback where they feel that maybe your head has been distracted by all these amazing experiences? I'm sure, yes. I don't remember maybe specifically one now, but um, from time to time they, they are very honest uh, with, with things that you may think or comments that you say or things that for them they are not that important. And uh, even sometimes I remember they had to deal with uh, with a lot of media attention, uh, even at the at the front of the door of, of their house or uh, paparazzis when we go summer together with my parents or whatever, these kind of things that I may get stressed as well because I don't want that they get uh, disturbed by all these things. But, you know, some from time to time they tell me, hey, this is not a problem, you know, they are taking a picture, you know, we are just sitting here uh, having a good time. So if they are happy with that picture, you know, it's, it's, it's their life and it's their job. And maybe sometimes I don't see it that way, you know, because uh, it's like they are stealing, you know, our privacy and our family time. But I understand what they're saying as well, because it's like, okay, this is life and Fernando, calm down. You know, this is, you cannot do, you cannot change the world. You cannot make justice on, on everything that you see in, in our days. You know, there are things that are like this and uh, you have to, to live happy with those. But is there a piece of wisdom or a piece of advice that your parents have given you that you will sometimes remind yourself of when you're in the middle of the whirlwind? Um, yeah, sometimes I think they are, because they are less, uh, let's say, less competitive than, than what I am. They, they are often, you know, happy with anything that happens on a race weekend or in my life or, or whatever problems that I have they normally are um, a good balance for me because for them is, oh, I feel that it's less important. So when I get stressed about, you know, whatever, a small thing about the race or about losing two points because we did this mistake or it happened that thing or that incident or whatever, I, I see from them and I hear from them that this is, this is very good, still very good. And I remember the first ever race in Formula One, my debut, in 2001 with Minardi that I called my father on Sunday morning of the race and I said okay it's two hours to the race so yeah let's see how it goes we start with the soft tires and then we will stop in lap 15 for the refueling because back then it was the refueling in Formula One and he said um, okay you know I don't care whatever the strategies and the and the team thinks is the best for sure is the best Try to enjoy because maybe it's your last race. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, uh, we never know. You know, this is uh, your first race. Maybe you are not delivering or you are not quick enough or the team is not happy with you at the end of the race or whatever. And then you will always be able to say that you race one Formula One Grand Prix. 
you know, you are a Grand Prix uh, driver. And uh, yeah, so that that the kind of approach that my family has that sometimes for me is very valuable and, and very helpful uh, when I get the stress. And uh, for them, everything is just a gift. It's just a, an extra. And this is very good. I think that's really interesting, actually, and probably still is useful now, right? Even after all these exactly. years. Can I talk about your mindset of exploration? Because you talked about, you know, leaving Formula One to explore other areas. I think also it allowed you probably to see Formula One through a completely different lens that you'd seen it through for the, you know, the previous 20 odd years. So when you stepped away from Formula One and suddenly overnight, you're no longer Fernando Alonso, Formula One driver, you're former Formula One driver and you no doubt watched the sport. What did you learn that you simply couldn't see when you were in it? I saw a lot of things. Uh, first was the, was the love that the people had uh, towards my my career and, and my job. Because when I stopped in 2018, I was tired of traveling and, and all the things around Formula One. And as I said, not being able to to compete for, for high things. But uh, I didn't have any perception or, or anything that uh, maybe people thought about the sport or, or myself in general. But when I stopped... The, the only thing that I receive every time that I was meeting people or any fan or yeah, people in the, at the airport or in the hotels or whatever, it was, you need to come back. You need to come back. You know, this kind of thing. So the people, it was a surprise that they loved what we were doing, you know, because for me, the last few years before I stopped, it was like, you know, we are nearly anonymous here. You know, the, the, this is not, uh, no one is seen us and, and the sport was not maybe great as, as it is now with all this drive to survive and Netflix and all these things. So I thought that it was much less interest, but I was surprised of, of how much love I received from people. And then, yeah, I saw Formula One, which is in, in motorsport, very different than other categories, much more selfish, much more uh, glamorous in a way. But fake in another way. I think it was more pure motorsport, Le Mans or Indy or, or Dakar for sure. But yeah, Formula One had this appeal, you know, the, the people want to uh, to attempt to the races, wanted to, to watch on TV. I was watching also on TV the Formula One races. I appreciate a little bit more all the stuff that as a driver I didn't like before. So the national anthem, the parade lap, having a little bit more access to the media and, and the cameras, which when you are a driver, you hate those moments. But when I was just uh, in my living room, I was missing those moments. And uh, if one or two drivers were a little bit more yeah, smiley or a little bit more uh, accessible, I think it was appreciated from, from, from home. So when I came back to the sport, I, I think I took a step more relaxed into those things and I was taking care a little bit more of, of fans and, and TV and these kind of things because I understand the importance of it uh, and that was able only because I, I was uh, two years out of Formula One. I just want to give a quick shout out to my foundational daily nutrition supplement that I take every day to support my whole body health. As always, really pleased that AG1 is partnering with the High Performance Podcast. Look, for the last three or four weeks, I've actually really stepped back from work. I've wound everything down. I wanted to spend time with the kids while they were on school holidays, a bit more time with my wife, having been really busy for the last few months. And what it's actually allowed me to do is really focus on making sure that I get into a routine. And the first thing I do in my daily routine 
is take AG1. Um, it takes two seconds, a quick scoop of powder into a shaker, shake it, drink it, and straight away, 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, whole food-sourced ingredients are straight into my system. And you know when James Clear came on High Performance, he spoke about ripple effect habits. I feel that AG1 is a ripple effect habit for me because when I start the day taking AG1, I then think to myself, look, I, I feel good. So therefore I go to the gym, therefore I eat better, therefore I sleep better. I just think it starts the day right for me. And if you're thinking about giving it a try and taking on board a simple, effective investment for your daily health and you want to try AG1, I can offer you five free AG1 travel packs and a free one year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash high performance. That's drinkag1.com forward slash high performance. It's been a game changer for me, a game changer for my wife, and I truly recommend it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And what about for you personally then? Because we speak to loads of former sports people who say, I didn't take one moment to enjoy my career because I was too focused on winning. Same. <laughs> Same. I, I regret that. I regret that. When I won the two championships back in Renault, my Ferrari time, I mean, it was it was good, but you are so focused on the next race, on the next weekend. You finish one race, you may win the race, and uh, you go to the airport, and when you are in the plane, you are thinking uh, about next weekend, so you land in at home and you text your engineer, you know, you, we need to test softer at the rear because, you know, the traction was very bad in this race, you know, at the end of the race, these kind of things. And uh, I think with with age and and now at this point of my career, it's like the the podiums of this year. It seems that when I rewatch the race on TV, I seem the happiest in the podium, and I just I was third and and two times second. But uh, it's because I'm I'm able to enjoy more those kind of moments and uh, celebrating every every weekend is is part of my thing now. Did you think before you had that time out and before you had this new approach that? you could either enjoy it or be successful, not both. And now maybe you realize that actually you can. Yeah, yeah. I had that feeling and uh, that if I was enjoying too much, it was like I was not professional or I was not wanting that success. But you, you realize with time and with uh, maturity that you can do both things and um, you can work hard, you can be very professional but at the same time, you have to give back something to the people that works for you and the people that uh, are supporting you. You know, if, if it's your team or your uh, marketing guys or your uh, media or, or, or just the fans on the grandstands, you know, they, they are there for you and you need to give something back. So can I ask you then around being in, in the cockpit? Because speaking to some of your colleagues here, they say that you have this remarkable ability to be able to spot details in the race, not just related to your car, but what rivals are doing or what else is going on there. And I'm interested in understanding how do you develop that ability to see details? Do you see patterns or are you looking for certain tells? 
I think it, it, it links a little bit with the uh, preparation and, and the way that I approach uh, things and, and races, you know, the level of detail that I need to be calm before the race, asking, you know, uh, five times about the strategy and uh, possible scenarios. What, what, what if I, I lose one place at the start? How this will transform our strategy? What if I gain one place at the start? We will stop one lap before, one lap later. Which tires will be good? Uh, to have on the car in in that scenario and in, in the other scenario. So because I have that uh, that quantity of of information before the race, when I see that one car you know had a bad stop, I immediately go back to what we saw in the morning, and that car having that bad stop and, and losing a, li a little bit of time will maybe give us the opportunity to maybe do extra three laps with this tire because we are not under pressure or there are no threats from behind or whatever. So maybe I comment that on the radio and they are surprised like how, you know, Fernando can, after a bad Ferrari pit stop, think that we can extend three laps our next stop. It's not that I realize there and I process all that information. Is that the, the information was inside already from Sunday morning when we review strategy possibilities and uh, because it's a communication between the team and me, we know that we are talking in the same page. So it's not that they didn't know that and they are surprised and my suggestion is going forward. Okay. Actually, it was their suggestion and it was their strategy and it was their information. I'm, I'm just remembering what we saw a few hours ago. And have you any time in 22 years of doing this job ever become lazy or complacent and gone into a race without that level of detail? No, no. I I could be a little bit lazy or um, not lack of motivation, but yeah, a little bit uh, not fully, fully um, on it. Maybe during the week uh, of the race, maybe the training or um, the preparation, sometimes we receive a document on the week before the race about the circuit changes, about all these things. Maybe I didn't read it in detail or something like that because I was not motivated to that weekend. But always that changes when I start the free practice on Friday. When mm. I start the free practice on Friday and you see yourself 12th, you want to be in 10th because you think that that's maybe possible. If you are 7th, Okay, you know, the P5 did a mega lap today. He maybe does, don't repeat that lap tomorrow. We can be top five. So very easily you, you get motivated during the weekend. And so by Sunday when I close the visor and, and the race starts, I've been always 100 uh, ready. Can you just give us some, a small bit of insight into what's going on in your mind, your final thoughts as you're closing the visor, as you've done the parade lap, as you're pulling up on the grid? What's the process at that point? Uh, it's just uh, executing the race as a, as a robot, basically. As a robot. No yeah. emotion? No emotion. And just there is only one way to see the checker flag faster than, than any other possibility. The drive as efficient as possible, taking care of the tires, the battery. We have very complex uh, hybrid engines on, on the cars and these kind of things. So when I close the visor, I, I remember everything that we spoke on Sunday morning with the team, uh, with each of the areas that are important in terms of performance, the, the engine, the tires, aerodynamics, strategy. And just I tried to 
deliver what they told me that is the most efficient way to see the checkered flag. So they did their part. Um, they studied the strategy, the simulations, and all the tools we have run millions of possibilities and scenarios, and, and we chose one, we pick up one that will be the, the fastest for us. So I take like that responsibility to deliver that job and uh, as a, the last chain in, in, in the team. And um, I, I try to have no emotions. Said that, you know, when you are racing, there is this high adrenaline, there are overtakings, there are things that they, they don't go as, as planned. And in that moment, obviously, uh, you are very emotional and, and you are at 180 heartbeat on, 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 on your adrenaline. So still a human behind and, and, and very enthusiastic about what we are doing. So that, that's, that's the beauty of the sport, that even if you want to do something with no emotion, everything comes alive in, in certain moments of the race. So what's interesting here then is how you've had to deal with the emotion that everyone has, which is the emotion of disappointment or feeling let down. Because what we've talked about here is an incredible attention to detail, a relentless discipline, a laser sharp focus for well over half your life for one goal, which is to win a race. Um, do you know your stats, race entries and race wins? What are they? Race wins, 32. 32 wins. Um, 300. 60 Grand Prix. Okay. So you've lost 90% of the Grand Prix that you've entered. Yes. You've moved to teams as they've designed cars that are disappointing in their performance. You've had moments throughout your entire career where you've been seconds away from something incredible and it hasn't happened. So what advice would you give the people listening to this for how to, how to deal with disappointment? Well, failure is, is needed in life. Um, and you have to to have down moments, you have to learn from from many things, uh, and and a sport in general, as you said, ninety percent of the times you will not succeed, or ninety nine. You know, it's, it's enough if you succeed one, to uh, to be worth all the all the things that you've been trying for many many years. And uh, I think not winning and not delivering what you will love to and and things like that are are essential for, for any human being to, to really get better every time. So you need to have that level of confidence and that level of discipline, as we said before, to separate what is a disappointment to what it can be a, a lesson, you know, and, and, and get better for the next time. But would you tell us how you do that? I like the idea of you being a robot when you get in the car. But as a human being, when you step out of it and you go through those reflections, what are the kind of questions or processes that you go through that our listeners could use and adopt in their life? Uh, it is extremely painful. You know, it's, 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 it's real pain when, when you remove the helmet and you are not um, on the podium and you see others celebrating and um, it is something that you cannot uh, digest sometimes for a few hours uh, until you get uh, at night at home or you have to sleep and, and the next morning you um, you try to process everything that happened uh, if it was a mistake from from yourself or if it was a, a strategy mistake or if it's just you know in our sport that the car is not fast enough how to make that car as fast as as the, the competition and um I think it's, it's just, you know, uh, you need to have, again, a plan and you have to have uh, 
uh, a program in your head that you are uh, willing to uh, to to respect and and you have to start with your self respect and and then to your team and to your teammates and and everyone that is working in the team knowing that you know there is a plan to achieve certain goal there is a plan to get better physically there is a plan to get better on the straights there is a plan of having less mechanical issues because we are you know getting stronger on the reliability side we are hiring two new people we are uh, building these uh, new facilities you know to to have a stronger gearbox for the future once you get that on your head i think it's very easy to keep going and and to keep you know delivering your best if you have any doubt or if you don't have not confidence on, on your team or you lost the trust of, of your uh, mechanic or if you have two bad pit stops and uh, you never talk about that or you never put in plan uh, an improvement to the system because definitely there is a there are some weaknesses on, on the system. If you don't do that, for sure, it is very difficult to get the motivation or to deliver. You need to find and, and to search for excellence in, in everything you do. And once you have that, then you have to respect that plan and, and to achieve that. But what I found particularly interesting in your earlier answer was that you have a plan in place of what you want to execute, but you've also seem to plan for what could go wrong. So you, and how do you mitigate against it? What proportion of your planning then is based on executing successfully? And what proportion of it is planning for mistakes, for failures and errors? Yeah, 80% is, is just about executing everything. 20% of the time and, and in your head is just plan B, plan C. So you go to your plan initially, but yeah, because if something goes wrong, you need to have something and don't panic. And... Uh, you have a plan, but that's not the optimal. So you you, you don't want to, to spend too much time in, in the suboptimal. And as you reflect on your career, what remains the biggest disappointment that you used as fuel at the time to push you forward? I will probably, yeah, if, if you go back in time, you know, you, you change things. Winning a championship with Ferrari, that will be probably... The first thing that I choose, if, if I can go back in time, 2010, 2012, we were within few laps to winning a championship. And that probably ch could have changed a little bit the the outcome of many things and, and the, the history behind of a few things. And that was disappointing for sure to miss those. And then, as I said, you know, because this is difficult to change and you never know and, and you depend of, of many other people and other teams as well and performance of the cars and things is difficult to um, to regret something because this is out of your hands. What I regret for sure and, and we touched before was not to enjoy more my, my time, my career. You know, I, I know that I'm at the end of, of it and uh, there is a, a new life, you know, in, in few years time for me without driving. And uh, when I will look back to my career, I will see a lot of uh, good things and um, good friendships and incredible experiences. But it's like I, sh I should have enjoyed more. And if I had the opportunity to live my exact life once more, uh, maybe I don't change anything on my teams or my choices or, or this Ferrari, maybe a title or whatever. I will just change um, 
to live a little bit uh, more all those moments and, and try to, to have more memories from those moments. I won the championship in Brazil 2005 and 6, and I hardly remember anything from those afternoons and nights, which is sad. So th this, these are the kind of things that I will, I will change. Every time I hear or see an interview with you, people obsess about the third world title, right? But when we sit here and talk about this sort of new mentality you've got towards racing, I wonder whether, of course, you'd love to win a third world title, but I wonder whether for you, it is actually just about enjoying the process. And maybe that makes you the best driver you've been in your entire career, perhaps. I don't know what you think. Yeah, exactly like that. I would love to win the championship one, once again, but it's not the highest priority. I think is I'm, I'm enjoying the, the process of, um, especially now with Aston Martin, to uh, become a, a contender for the future. I'm loving the time with, with the team, how we are all growing up in many different areas. I will try 99% Dakar again. It's not that the third world title is, is less of a priority. It is a priority. But winning Dakar one day, it is a high priority for me as well. I, I will maybe have to attempt that race eight, ten years or whatever until maybe one day I, I got lucky and, and I can fight for the win. But if I win uh, in Formula One, in endurance racing and in uh, Dakar, that will feel for me something special uh, as a driver and as a person. So those kind of challenges are, are in, my, in my head at the moment. Amazing. Right. We've reached the point for our final few questions, our quick fire round. So the first one is the three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you need to buy into. I would say discipline is one. Integrity. Yeah. And confidence. I, I like the people that has this power of, of convincing you, you know, when, when they talk about something because they are so sure of, of what they are doing and, and this is very powerful. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? I will go back to my school time because, I don't know, when you are young, you are free, You're, you have endless possibility uh, of, you know, doing whatever you want in the future and with your life and, and this is kind of a feeling that you, you miss later in your life you know so college i think is, is beautiful time what is the hidden cost of of your achievements of living the life that you live nothing really i think uh, you, you lose your privacy this is a, a very very important thing and you have to deal with and we are all different in terms of dealing with this thing for me it is not easy coming from where i come from and things losing your privacy and, and, and not being anonymous anymore in any place in the world and constrained yourself to do certain things at certain times or just to avoid, you know, uh, stress, that, that's a high uh, price to pay. Well, and what about growth and relationships, particularly away from Formula One? You know, you're 41 and you're not married, you have no children. Has that been a sacrifice you've had to make? Probably yes, yeah. Yeah, I love kids and yeah, probably not being a, in the sport and not being a Formula One driver, I, I probably would have my own family by now, but, but that's something that you never know. So I, I, I don't think too much on this. What's one piece of advice you would give to a young Fernando starting out? To enjoy more, as we said, um, to take care more about, you know, your, your 
friends, family. It's not that I didn't take care, but you know, it seems that that you always want to spend more time with them. Uh, my grandparents, uh, they are not uh, with me anymore. These kind of things, you know, you. Uh, if you could have, you know, a conversation with yourself, you know, a few years ago, you will, you will advise these kind of things. How happy are you? From what? One to ten? Yeah. <laughs> nine. Nine point five. Oh, that's good. <laughs> What's the most valuable piece of advice that you've ever received? On the personal life, um, my parents are always giving me, uh, you know, the sense of. Um, being a good person, um, humble, trying to to take care of of, of yourself and the others. Uh, I think this is something that um, I always appreciated, and, and my parents are always giving me the best uh, advices on the professional side of things. I remember when I was in go car, I was thirteen or something like that, and I finished uh, second in the world championship. Uh, the first year that I attempted, and uh, I was so happy. It was my second international race uh, in the podium in the world championship. That was just incredible. And I arrived to the team, and um, I seemed that I was the only one happy. So the head of mechanics back then in, in Gokar in my team came to me and put me in, in one of the sides of the tent, and he said, uh, be happy, enjoy, but don't. There is no much to celebrate. Second is the first losers. In a sport, you win or you don't. You know, to finish second, seventh, or eleventh is the same. There is only one guy with the trophy, and it's not us. So I understand your emotion, but this is nothing to celebrate. It was shocking because I was thirteen, and I thought that that was really, you know rude you know and, and that was really bad you know for for a kid but then with time i i understood that that was an, a good advice in general you know, in, you know especially in the sports when, or when you are competing for something you win or you don't you know it's not that you train and you are here at the simulator or at the races or whatever to finish seventh and seventh is the same as 17th you know there is only one guy winning and the final question um for the many people that have listen to this of all ages, all backgrounds, what would you like to leave ringing in their ears, your one golden rule for them to find their own version of high performance? I think self-confidence, um, being prepared for everything you do in life. Um, you know, you cannot underestimate even the easiest thing in life or something that you do every day in your job or whatever and you get used to. There is always something that uh, it will change one day technology will change, something will change and you have to adapt to that and deliver that extra again because there is a, a new way of doing things. And uh, yeah, the world is changing. You have to adapt and you have to, to deliver something extra. Uh, so you cannot be happy with, with, with anything. You have to always search for something better. It's very good. It's fantastic. Do you enjoy having these sorts of conversations? Because most of the interviews you do in your career are simply about the racing. I do like reflecting. Well, listen, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, I, I sort of, I think um, this team have got you at the perfect time because I think Fernando 15 years ago wouldn't have actually cared about a project, would he? He would yep. have said, I don't care. I want to win today. And exactly. I think you're now a man who sees the bigger picture, sees the journey, sees what you can do when you all pull together. And, 
I think it's the perfect team at the perfect time. Would you agree? I do agree. And uh, yeah, I think it is in life. Eh? It's not only in, in sports in general. I think when you are 20, you see life in a way. And when you are 40, you see it in a completely different way. Unfortunately, in life, when you have the experience of 40, you will love to have 20 because you have your body ready for, for the knowledge that you have at 40. But in motorsport, I think at the age of 40 and the knowledge that you have at 40, it's not a big disadvantage not to have the body of 20 because we're still you know, driving cars and it's more a, a mental thing and, and create automatism on, on, on your hands, steering wheel, all these kind of things. So I think at the moment I, I feel good because my sport is, is good at the age of 40 and that knowledge and still delivering. If I was a footballer or a tennis player or whatever, that will be more painful. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Damien. Jake. Look, I obviously worked with Fernando for a few years in Formula One. And in that time, not only worked with him, but studied him to learn about him. The man who's just sat in front of us is a different person to the guy that I used to work with without question. And it's a great reminder to people listening to this, how change, how a break, how stepping back, how seeing things through a new lens can do so much for us. Well, his final answer is one golden rule captured that very point jake around you've got to adapt you've got to keep changing and keep embracing change not fearing it and that's a man that's obviously done that and had the humility that his parents instilled in him to not lose sight of that to be willing to keep looking at himself and reflecting i think there's so many fascinating things to take away from that i mean i i love this conversation about when the visor goes down and we all have this idea that he's living in the moment, that he's studying the race, that it's a very kind of, like a very alive experience during a Grand Prix. But what he's just told us is that it's about the preparation. So that actually it's almost, it's almost mathematical. You know, he describes himself as a robot during the race. And I think there's, again, a great lesson for people that if you get your preparation right, it allows you to do the most incredible things in the heat of the moment. But marry it up with what he said, that 20% of that preparation is about, let's plan for plan B and mm. plan C. So we almost work out, we know what we want to do, but how we're going to deal with and adapt to change as and when it happens. I think there's something valuable that for all of us in life. And let me ask you a question, right? Having just had that conversation with him, who is like, let's reframe success, okay? Who is the more successful Fernando Alonso? The guy that won two world titles, but has just admitted to us he has no memory or recollection of it. Or the guy who is now finishing second and third in the Grand Prix, he's on the podium, he knows the end of his career is not a million miles away, yet he's savouring and enjoying and living every moment. Which of those two Fernandos, the championship winner or the podium finisher, is successful? Well, the short answer is both. But I think in terms of what he's talking about, of what he can take away and apply to the rest of his life, it's the second guy. But that answer he gave us about the most valuable piece of advice when he was 13 years of age and that bloke telling him that there's only one winner coming second is first loser. I think that's still in him somewhere. Mm. But I think what's incredibly valuable for this is this is a guy that scaled both mountains. This isn't somebody that has spent his career coming second and trying to justify it. This is a man that has scaled that mountain, but telling us there's a better way of doing it, which is what he's found now. Well, there we go. Fernando Alonso, as he is rarely seen and heard. It was a privilege.
So there we go. Fernando Alonso on high performance, one of the most requested high performance guests and someone actually that we've been trying to bring you since we started this podcast over three years ago. Formula One is a sport driven by marginal gains, looking for that edge. And if you would like to find your edge, then we would like to help you do that. We have created the High Performance app. It has exclusive content. It has daily boosts. It just gets you closer to your own version of high performance. We've created it for you, with you. We've had thousands of high performance podcast listeners giving us regular feedback, telling us what they want to see. So if you want to get involved, then just click the link in the description to this podcast so that you can download the High Performance app and get closer to your own version of high performance. And finally, to everybody at Aston Martin, to Fernando Alonso for taking the time to have a long form interview like that. Thank you so, so much for helping us get closer to our own version of high performance. It was fascinating. We feel privileged to have had that conversation. And for you listening, see you for more very soon. 